Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. If you're listening for the first time, this is the radio program where we tell it exactly the way it is. We do everything we can possibly do to assist entrepreneurs. We bring you the latest information every week, what is happening, and uh, not only here, but all throughout the world. We're heard right across the world at the same time each week, shows live and every time there's a glitch, like there was 20 minutes ago, it sends trepidations down our spine. We're also very proud of the fact that we're the number one radio show globally for entrepreneurs. And uh, the Voice American Radio Network has renewed our contract for another 12 months. So we are going, we started in 2011, we're going at least through 2015. And it's all due to you, our fabulous listening audience. My new website went live last week, and I invited you to go to bobpritchard.com and check it out. We've had a great response so far to the site, but I'd love to hear your views, so check out bobpritchard.com and drop me an email at bob at bobpritchard.com and let me know what you think. I don't care whether you hate it or love it, just Give it a shot. There's some good news this week. Now, I've been fairly critical of Google Glass in the past, but um, I may have to reconsider my thinking. Can Google Glass possibly spell the end of charts in hospitals and the way we do things in hospitals? Doctors in a Boston hospital have created their own way to use Google Glass for real-time patient charts and medical information, already saving at least one life. The doctors simply come in, scan a QR code with their Google Glass, and they see patient data, and this patient data is still held securely behind the hospital's firewall. Now, we've seen how Google... (laughs) Google Glass, hard to say. We've already seen how Google Glass can help out firefighters and interviewees and all sorts of people. But doctors have been a potential user group based on wearing glass during surgery and a preview program last year that suggested using glass for patient history and now that is a reality. At the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Centre in Boston, The emergency department created its own prototype software for glass so that doctors can quickly get a patient's medical history and their current health information simply by looking at the QR code that represents that particular patient. So when a clinician walks into an emergency department room, they just look at the QR code placed on the wall. And for anybody who doesn't know, QR stands for quick response. It's that square code that you see. And Google Glass immediately recognises the room 
and then the ED dashboard sends information about the past, about the patient in the room to the glasses appearing in the clinician's field of vision. The clinician can then speak with the patient, examine them and perform procedures while seeing problems, vital signs, lab results and other data in the glass in real time. Now, the prototype app was written so that all personal information stays behind the hospital firewall, so it never goes to Google or to any other service, so it's always 100% confidential to the patient. Now, this application's already saved one life when a patient couldn't remember what medications he was allergic to when it was an emergency, so the um, ER doctor was able to take immediate necessary action. And by having this information readily available at the bedside, they could quickly start both anti-hypertensive therapy and reversal medication for his blood thinners, treatments that if delayed could have led to permanent disability and even death. Now, I think Google Glass looks pretty stupid, but, and they may be ridiculed as a pretty expensive piece of hardware at $1,500. Damn good for taking pictures and, and video, though. But the software is going to prove the value of wearable computers. And, of course, the $1,500 price tag won't stay long. One would predict that they'll be down around $500 fairly quickly. And, of course, there are a number of other people that are producing similar wearable computers, so um, that's a good piece of news. And the, the medical profession seems like the perfect profession for it too, doesn't it? Another piece of news this week is that Apple just launched its latest update to iOS 7. This is the software that powers the iPhone and the iPad, and it includes a potentially huge improvement to its iBeacon software that helps Apple and could propel them to be a big player in the future of mobile commerce. The idea behind beacons is that they use Bluetooth connections and they send messages directly to people's smartphones, meaning that Apple and retailers can then use them to push location-based flash deals to customers. They can give product info or they can simply make mobile payments much more simple. Now, couple this with Touch ID, which is Apple's fingerprint security on the iPhone 5S, it makes mobile payments mega secure. So an iBeacon network could dominate bricks and mortar retail if it becomes widely adopted. And the fact that it's so secure is probably a has got to be a huge advantage. Now, Apple's leading the pack with Beacon technology because it's enabled almost all of its iOS 7 devices to both send and receive Beacon signals. Other companies like PayPal and Qualcomm and a number of others make dedicated low-cost hardware that retailers can use, but this is across the spectrum at Apple. Now, even if you haven't opened an app since the day you downloaded it, which a lot of us do download an app, 
never get to open it or use it once or twice and never use it again, you'll still receive proximity-based messages that'll just pop up on your iPhone's lock screen as long as you have Bluetooth on and uh, it's location data enabled. So that's all very simple. Now, this might seem a fairly subtle um, thing, but implications are pretty huge. iBeacon developers now have much more incentive to make apps that use beacon technology because they don't have to worry about that extra hurdle of prompting users to open the apps when they're shopping. So even if the apps are closed, you'll still get the pop-ups. There's less of a barrier for mainstream adoption. Plus, now that Apple's made the plunge into increased notification capabilities, it shouldn't be long until other companies use Beacon technology to follow suit. One would think that um, Samsung is right around the corner. Now, this, it opens the door for more huge leap forward in really simple mobile commerce. The idea is that Beacons could trigger an automatic payment when a person leaves a specific location, making that payment totally effortless for shoppers, while it's helping retailer gather boatloads of valuable customer data. Now, and retailers who use a combination of beacon technology and mobile payments will have more data on consumer patterns, their behaviours and their preferences. So a lot of valuable information for retailers. For Apple, that's where their Touch ID technology, which lets you unlock your phone using your fingerprint. It's pretty cool. I have it on my um, five. So although most people think of Touch ID as simply a way to keep people out of your phone, it also makes the iPhone the perfect secure mobile payments device, doesn't it? So the only way it can be done is through your fingerprint. Apple's iBeacon technology will track your in-store location and then Touch ID will let you pay from your phone when you're ready to leave the store. That's a pretty killer combination, I reckon. Another piece of information that I came across during the week is that the number of billionaires that are around. You know, I remember the day when there was, you know, to be a billionaire was pretty rare. But sit there and have a think. How many billionaires do you think are in California? Forget about the whole of America, but how many do you think are in California? 10, 20, 30? How many do you reckon? The answer is 111. There's 111 people that have got more than $1,000 million that are living in California. And the state's broke. And we're the worst performing state in the country. How the hell does that work? New York's second. And they have only a measly 87 billionaires. California, both Silicon Valley and now Los Angeles, are both global leaders in technology development and the growth in the number of entrepreneurs and millionaires 
hundreds of millionaires and billionaires is growing very quickly. Now, this program is all about entrepreneurs. We salute you whether you've just opened a dry cleaners store or you've developed a new app. We don't care. We don't care if you're 14 or 114. We don't care if you're male or female, black, white or brindle. If you're an entrepreneur and have got enough guts to get out there and give it a go, we here at the Bob Pritchard Radio Show are a big fan and we will do absolutely anything that we can do to assist you. Let me tell you today about a couple of young entrepreneurs. In December 2010, a new mobile game app called Bubble Ball was launched on in the Apple App Store. In its first two weeks, it received more than one million downloads. Now, you think of all the apps. There's thousands of them every day. This app, Bubble Ball, more than one million downloads, which surpassed Angry Birds as the most downloaded free game from Apple. Now, this game was built entirely by Robert Nay. He's a 14-year-old with no previous coding experience. He learned everything he needed to know through research at the public library. Ha <laughs> And he produced 4,000 lines of code for his physics-based puzzle game in just one month. So no coding experience, learnt at the library, produced 4,000 lines of code, produced bubble ball, and got more than one million downloads. And he's bloody well 14 years old. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well done, Robert. Brilliant. Not to leave the girls out, six-year-old Lizzie Murray Likeness wanted to ride horses. To pay for horseback riding lessons, she began selling homemade baked goods at a local farmer's market. Eventually... Marie realised that cooking was what she really loved to do. So, with the help of her parents, she built a healthy cooking website with instructional videos to help kids eat better. Now Marie is 13, and she has cooking classes, appears on The Rachel Ray Show, starred in her own WebMD video series, which was called Healthy Cooking with Chef Lizzie, all through her culinary business venture. Started at six years old. <laughs> God, what's wrong with me? Go, girl. Well done. Now, here on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, we're always encouraging entrepreneurs to give back to society. We believe that the full measure of an entrepreneur is gauged not only by what they receive, but what they give back the to the community that enabled them to achieve it. Now, since she was very young, Naya Gupta has participated in a family's tradition of celebrating birthdays by travelling home to India and bringing food and gifts to orphans in their hometown. In 2005, when she was nine years old, she decided she wanted to do more to make a real difference in these children's lives in India. So she began selling homemade wine charms door-to-door and at community events, 
to raise money for school books and other educational expenses for orphans. These efforts led her to create her own registered non-profit, Empower Orphans. Gupta is now 17 and has raised more than $1 million for orphans in India. 17. She's received a bunch of awards from a number of people. Naya, we are very, very impressed. Congratulations. Now, how many teenagers can say that a multinational corporation purchased their company and made them a multimillionaire? There's probably not a lot. In fact, I don't know any. But Nick Delosio is one of them. The 17-year-old entrepreneur is a tech prodigy behind Sumly, a summarisation app, the algorithmy. Algorithmically creates summaries of news articles optimised for the iPhone. So at 15, he received backing from Horizon Ventures and other angel investors, and then he went ahead and developed the technology. And in March 2013, Yahoo acquired Delosio's company for $30 million. Woo! Congratulations, Nick. I hope you're giving some of that well-earned profit back to the less fortunate. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. The whole reason we're here is to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and uh, we'll answer it on air or we'll email you directly. We're the number one show in the world for entrepreneurs. So no matter where you are in the world, thank you for listening. Now, after the break, I was going to talk to Tim Draper about his Six Californias venture, but um, just before we went on air, we realised that we had a fault in the recording, and so we can't proceed with that. I will attempt to get Tim back during the week. And uh, instead, today's guest will be Scott Ross. He was on the show about a year and a half ago, and he was one of the most notable pioneers in digital media and entertainment. Along with James Cameron and Stan Winston, he founded Digital Domain, uh, which scored its first Academy Award for the visual effects in Titanic. Then he won a second Oscar for What Dreams may come, and then a third for the curious case of Benjamin Button. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. He's a great guy. We had a wonderful breakfast together. So after the break, I'll be back with Scott Ross. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. 
Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk to extraordinary people, people who have enjoyed enormous success and have made a real difference. There's some amazingly talented people in this world, and I love to speak with them and interview them because they've so much. They've got so much that they can teach all of us. My aim in these interviews is to try and find out what makes them tick, what are their characteristics that make them successful, while a lot of us work hard and still struggle, what we can learn, and you know where they think their industry is going to go. Now, my guest today has been one of the most notable pioneers in digital media and entertainment. Scott Ross has had a stellar career. I mean, it's an amazing career. Along with James Cameron and Stan Winston, he founded Digital Domain, one of the largest digital production studios in the motion picture and advertising industry. Digital Domain scored his first Academy Award with a little thing called Titanic. This was followed by a second Oscar for what dreams may come, and then a third for the sensational, curious case of Benjamin Button. And this is only the tip of the iceberg. There's a raft of amazing imagery in a host of hit Hollywood movies. Now, my mum used to say that you, you're judged by the company you keep. Well, how about these? Scott's work with Spielberg, Cameron, Howard, Scorsese, Coppola, the Coen brothers, Peter Jackson, and more. Now, that's You've got to count people among your friends. They're not a bad bunch to start counting with. But before this, Scott led George Lucas' vast entertainment empire running ILM, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Commercial Production, and Droidworks. Under his leadership at ILM, they collected 15 Academy Awards for Best Special Effects. He also launched a major feature film Secondhand Lions, which achieved both critical and box office success. Scott's a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the Oscars, and also the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, the Emmys. And I have to say, for a guy's worked in over a hundred of the world's largest special effects films, he's a good guy and very unassuming. He seems to intimidate a few people, but I found him to be a pretty good bloke. Hi, Scott. Great to catch up with you the other day. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Thanks, Bob. Good morning. How are you? Mate, I'm really good. I was reading this morning that um, estimates suggest that Iron Man 3 has already racked up about $600 million in its first week or so of release. 
And it's a movie that's based solely on special effects, every single scene. Yet some 40 or so visual effects companies have gone bankrupt in the last few years. You'd think that they'd all be booming. So what's happened? Well, it's an interesting phenomenon, and it's been something that's been happening over the last 25, 30 years that I've been in the business, which is, um, you know, I, I uh, it's, a, it's an interesting analogy that I, I try to use. I, I consider the visual effects industry sort of like the uh, airline industry, which there's an incredible amount of infrastructure that has been built. You have planes on the ground, planes in the air. You have mechanics all over the world. You have flight attendants and pilots. And so a huge infrastructure, you know, for example, at Industrial Light and Magic at any given time, there could be 700 to 1,000 employees, similarly at Digital Domain. Yeah. So with all of that overhead and with all of that stuff that one needs to be able to, you know, create those images, um, the scary part is when your planes are on the ground. So, you know, from a, from an air, airline perspective, as we're making this analogy, the fellow who's running the airline thinks to himself, well, if I can get the planes up in the air, and I know that for me to break even, I have to get uh, um, $100 a seat, and I have to fill the plane by 80%, yeah. um, it's a lot less losing what he will lose less money if he gets $60 a seat and fills the plane at 50% but still has the plane take off right. as opposed to saying, okay, everybody, it's $100 a seat. Your planes are on the ground and they're not flying. So in many ways, the visual effects industry leaders and management, partly due to the fact that there are only six clients, right, yeah. um, undercut themselves yeah. and continue to drive prices down. Well, there's actually more than six clients, isn't there? Because almost every movie today depends on <laughs> special effects. So they're, they're actually, um, in a lot of ways, the clients, aren't they? Uh, yeah, but, but, it, but Bob, really, it, it, you know, if you think about it, there are really only six clients. And the six clients are Warner Brothers, yeah. Disney, Paramount, Universal. You know, those are the clients. Yeah. So, yes, the, the directors come and they go. And the producers come and they go, but at the end of the day, the check that you get says Universal Pictures on it. Yeah, yeah. Now, surely when the studios and the theatergoers get their first look at a um, an Iron Man or a Life of Pi, surely they go, wow, thank God for special effects. It's keeping our industry alive. Do, do people think that or they just take it for granted or is it just totally price-driven? Well, from the, from the perspective, I think, of the consumer, the consumer no longer goes to a movie because it stars Tom Cruise yeah. or it stars Tom Hanks. And there are a handful of directors that, that audiences will flock to to see. But generally speaking, you know, you don't really know who the director is either. And so what's the calling card for movies nowadays? The calling cards are the reels, the the teasers, the trailers that yeah. play on the Internet and play on television, and it's the imagery that does it, right? So from right. the consumer perspective, it's the visual effects that bring in the people to see the movies and put the butts in the seats. From the movie um, executive, from the studio perspective, they're fully aware of that. You know, it's been a long time coming, and the transition has happened. Forty-nine of the top 50 box office movies of all time 
are visual effects or computer-generated animation vehicles. So wow. it, it, it's clear to everyone, the consumer and the studio alike, that if you're going to have a hit movie, particularly an international hit movie, it better be chock full of digital effects. Right. Um, so that being said, you would think once again, oh, darn, <laughs> why aren't these companies making any money? And the reason is partly due to the business model, which is um, these companies bid on a project on a flatbed basis. Right. So, you know, by their very nature of visual effects being imagery that, that you've never seen before, therefore imagery that's never been done before, therefore we don't really know how to do this thing, right? We're, we're inventing constantly. It becomes really difficult, if almost impossible, to come up with a flat bid, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, if you look at the way that movies and television shows are produced today, you know, special special effects are a major component even of television now. So they're one of the biggest industries in the United States, and yet they don't seem to get recognition. And wouldn't recognition from inside the industry um, go a long way towards um, building their positioning and therefore hopefully elevating prices to where they can make a profit. Um, you mentioned to me earlier that um, in his Oscar acceptance speech, Ang Lee thanked almost everybody on the planet, but didn't mention the special effects, which is 99% of his movie. Um, right. so, so why don't the people in the industry whose film is depending on brilliant special effects, why don't they give it more positioning? Well, you, you can look at it from two ways. One is the... the applicable way, which is the way it is, and then one which is the sort of paranoid, well, maybe it's a way to be able to keep them down on the farm, right? So um, let's take Ang Lee and the life of Pi, which you just mentioned. Clearly, the life of Pi um, would not have been the tour de force that it, it was, nor would it have done the, I think, close to $700 million worldwide box office that it's done. Nor would Ang Lee have gotten the Academy Award for Best Director, or Claudio Verona get the the best uh, for Best Cinematography, the Academy Award. Yeah. But we know that really the life of Pi, in many ways, was a Indian boy in a lifeboat in a swimming pool surrounded by blue screen, and yeah. everything else you saw in the movie. The meerkats, the tiger, the orangutan, the sky, the waves, the birds, the fish were all created in computer-generated imagery at Rhythm and News and, yeah. and several other companies. So why did they, not, did they do what they did? And I think the answer to that is all of the work that takes place manipulating those images and creating those images takes place in distant locations where incredible technical and incredible artistic men and women sit in darkened rooms for hours on a day and days on a week to create those images with little to no interaction yeah. with Ang Lee or the first, uh, the, the first unit team. So it's, you know, the guys in the pool, Ang is there shooting. You know, he's directing the kid. And all yeah. those pool guys, are, he knows those guys, loves those guys. But he rarely, if ever, meets the men and women located at Rhythm and Hughes who are in this dark, you know, cavernous place working diligently on their computers. 
15, 16 hours a day, six, seven days a week. Yeah. See, so it, it's a race by the studios to get special effects more and more cheaply, and this puts pressure on the companies and effectively sends them out of business. I would have thought that it was in the studio's interest to support um, special effects companies. I know um, I belong to a group called Metal, as do you, and um, there's a couple of special effects guys there that um, work really hard to create new special effects to be on the cutting edge and continually come up with bigger and better and better and better special effects. Why wouldn't the studio support those people? Because that's going to be the future of their industry, surely. Well, it's not only the future of the industry. As, as international films become more important, you know, if we look at box office today, uh, 35% of total box office on tentpole movies comes from the United States, while the remaining, you know, 65 to 70% of time, uh, box office comes from international territories. And, and that's changing. That's moving more towards international as more screens are built, sure. as China comes online, et cetera. So, yeah, China's very important now, isn't it? Yeah, and it's going to be, it's going to surpass the, the U.S. in the number of screens, I believe, by the year 2020. So, What's the international language? The international language is visual imagery. You know, yeah. it's not going to be driving Miss Daisy. So yeah, you're absolutely right. The future of uh, the immediate future of the of the future film industry continues to be visual effects. So you would say, well, why wouldn't they want to keep those companies in business? And the answer to it is is a cultural issue. Culturally the movie industry, the studios, and the way the movie industry works, I believe has an attitude of, I don't believe what you're saying, you're trying to screw me. Now, you know, it's sort of the pot calling the kettle black. Right? I was just going to say, the studios are worrying about somebody screwing them. God. Well, but it's the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, if, yeah, if, one, if, if one acts always that you're ripping everybody off and trying to create deals and tax incentives and you're trying to manipulate your accounting so that you can hold on to as much of the money as you can, then one has to assume that everyone else is doing the same thing. So now if you look at a budget on a movie, take a movie like Superman, um, you know, a movie that's uh, in excess of $200 million as an overall budget, approximately half that budget is visual effects. The number one line item on a major tentpole movie nowadays is no longer the artist, it's the visual effects component. So if you're a movie studio and you're looking and you're saying, gosh, we're spending $100 million on visual effects from the zeitgeist, the cultural zeitgeist by which a movie studio has operated over the last 50, 60 years, they're scratching their head and they're saying, somebody's zooming somebody. Somebody's making some money over here. Yeah. And that what they don't realize is that all of that $100 million and sometimes more than that $100 million is actually being spent on the men and women that are creating those images with no participation in those films whatsoever. Wow. I guess they've, they've managed to push talent uh, fees down dramatically. As the, as the level of um, special effects increases, talent fees have gone down because talent is so much less important now. I mean, that... The cast of um, um, Iron Man, for example, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a bloody good cast with, with Downey and um, um, Kingsley and all, I can't remember who else is in it, but the Paltrow, but it's a, it's a bloody good cast, but they're nowhere near as important 
most of the time he's running around with a mask on his head. Um, the talent's nowhere near as important today, is it? What's going to happen to top-line talent? Well, you know, the, the talent, in, in my opinion, the talent is, uh, the star talent is nowhere near as important, though i got to tell you, I think Robert Downey Jr. is the reason, is one of the main reasons why Iron Man, for the Iron Man franchise is what it is. I mean, Iron Man He's 1. right actor. Has the casting been different? I'm not sure anyone else in the in the stellar universe of stars could have actually pulled that role off like Downey did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably the reason. I, I don't have the exact numbers on his deal, but it's been touted that his deal is one of the richest deals around um, for for the sequels. So right. you know, Robert Downey is not hurting. But Robert Downey deservedly, in many ways, um, deservedly created, helped create that franchise, and therefore, you know, is getting, paid, is getting compensated very well. Now, the interesting thing about it is that Robert Downey has a manager, and Robert Downey has an agent, right? right. Yep. And so it's not that it's not that Robert's out there sort of slogging it out with the studios. He has he has people, as we say in Hollywood, that are doing that. <laughs> yeah. Now, unfortunately for Industrial Light and Magic, you know, the folks yeah. that did the visual effects on the first Iron Man movie, they don't have those agents. They don't have people that are slogging it out. And so, um, you know, I don't know what Industrial Light and Magic made on Iron Man 1, but I can, from, my, from having run Industrial Light and Magic back in the day and running digital domain, I would probably say not very much. Robert Downey did a whole lot better than Industrial Light and Magic did. So why don't, why don't these companies have people representing them? I mean, you know, the tobacco industry's got um, a whole plethora of um, um, agents running around Washington trying to twist people's arms. Why, why don't these companies have an equivalent? Well, you know, again, it gets back to a cultural issue. So most of these companies that are of size and scope were started, you know, at most 25, 30 years ago. Sure. And they were started by men, not, unfortunately not women at the time, but mostly men that were either technical people that built camera rigs or, or understood photochemical processes, or they were artists, you know, creative people yeah. that, you know... Uh, and so there wasn't really a business component to these businesses, you know, it, and, and the attitude sort of was, and I think the great George Lucas line from the Star Wars day was, uh, if we give them enough pizza and beer, they'll do anything. You know, so it was that sensibility, that was, uh, again, the cultural um, platform by what, with the, which this industry was, was built. And, you know, you have, for all intents and purposes, all of these fanboys they are like, golly, I'm working on Star Wars. I'll do it for free. Yeah. And, um, and that's what's happened. So the business component of the industry, the third leg of the stool, as it were, was not there. And, uh, you know, people were doing it for fun, and people were doing it for credit. And you can only do that for so long. It's one thing when, you know, you're working with, with glue and sticks and paint, as yeah. we were in the mid-1980s, but now we're working on servers and, and, and broadband and cloud computing and software that needs to be written. It, it's, a, it's an industry, and it's big. Yeah. So it's really the um, visual effects studio's own fault they're going broke. 
Well, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's really, you know, it's sort of when the client says jump and you say how high and I'll continue to jump, at some point you have to stand up for yourself and say, no, you do not own my software that we built for this show. This is not your software because you're not paying me for it. Yeah. So, no, you do not own the pipeline, the processes, the computers. We're providing a service for you. And, by the way, the service that we're providing you is extraordinary and worth hundreds of millions of dollars in box office. And so we should benefit, just like the actor benefits. Yeah. I guess, I guess they're used to it. I, I was going through a... Um a writer's contract for, for a studio um, the other day, and it's, you know, 50 pages of the most complicated stuff you could ever read in your life, and it effectively takes away every right that everybody has. So since they've been able to do that with writers and no doubt with everyone else, I guess it's just a natural extension to take it through to visual effects. Well, it's worse on the visual effects side, but at least the writers have the Writers Guild, and oftentimes, you know, writers have agents. So there are at least people that are their foils that, that are out there working, but the visual effects industry has none of that, right? So the uh, visual effects industry is much more naked and, 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 and in much, in not as good a position. Plus, the numbers are so much higher, you know, um, I mean, at this point, you look at Pirates of the Caribbean, I, I think Johnny Depp is being paid in excess of $20 million to be in the film. Well, the, the visual effects dwarf that, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, uh, of course, where, where, where does one go? One goes to the, to the highest number and, and starts to rip that apart because you think that's where the most fat is. Well, but it's not. Yeah, okay. So, Scott... Where's the movie industry going, say, the next 10 years? The old studio system, is that broken down and the, the studio, there's going to be a lot more independence and the studios are going to be essentially just distribution centres? Do you see that happening? Well, I don't even see the studios as being distribution centres. I mean, today, the studios are distribution centres and financiers. Yeah. The studios are generally not creative, right? They're, no, you, you know, you, yeah. a lot of people think of the studios as they make movies. Uh, the studios generally, I mean, there's some, but the studios generally finance and distribute movies. That's, yeah, right. that's what they do, yep. right? So um, the distribution channels are changing. And so nowadays, you know, we, we're still going to the cinema and looking at the silver screen and whether it's projected on film, though hardly any at all, yeah. and now projected digitally, there's still a lot of people that, continue to go to the cinema, and we've seen, frankly, you know, I mean, back in the day, um, well, the Walt Disney Company was producing somewhere around 20 movies a year. I think the Walt Disney Company is producing about five movies a year now. Right. So we're seeing tentpole movies still play in, um, in cinemas, but, you know, uh, I'm an old guy. My, my son, son and my daughters, they're watching their movies, they're, they're, they're accessing their content on smartphones, on pads, on on smart televisions, their tip to the movies doesn't make as much sense to them. It's like, wait, you want me to be there at 2.15 for showtime? Well, I want to watch my movie when I want to watch it. And they have the opportunity to do that. So uh, different, different, this, a totally different experience. That's, that's another question. Do you think that the um, um, tablet 
video, uh, television screens ever going to replace the big screen? I mean, the, the, you don't have the atmosphere. You don't have it, – it's a whole different experience, isn't it? Well, you know, history has said that uh, that nothing ever really gets replaced. You know, um, I went and I saw Shakespeare, you know, uh, at the book. At the you know, yeah. One will still go to the theater. One still – I still listen to radio. Um, you know, la, 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 la. But will that market dwindle? Yes. I think the cinema experience will become, at least for the rest of my lifetime, um, an experience that is really special only for big tentpole movies and um, and maybe for dinner theaters and simulated ride, ride experiences. But, you know, at some point, um, cinema becomes a lot less critical and uh, and big screens in people's homes and or smart devices, you know, take 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 the place of what we used to do to go for a music a movie experience. Okay, last question. Movies are depending more and more and more on you know cutting in edge technologies that's mainly developed by nerds in their twenties. So is the movie industry of the future going to be driven by a management team that looks like the one at Facebook? Uh, I'm not all that familiar with the management team at Facebook. You know, I, I read everything that I can about Zuckerberg because I'm sort of fascinated by this sort of, um, you know, <laughs> just ordinary. Uh, he, he, he's a real, he's a real interesting person. Let's just they, put it that they, way. They just hit 1.11 billion yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's amazing. It's um, you know, listen, I think the future of displays will change. We're seeing, uh, we're seeing the likes of a company like Google come in with Google Glass. Very yeah. shortly thereafter, I think we will see uh, advances in, in heads-up displays that you wear. Uh, I can see altered realities where, you know, you could be looking through glasses and, and look at your living room and all of a sudden uh, a monster breaks through the wall. And, uh, you know, you're experiencing those kinds of experiences and and chances are most of that will be curated by young people and and the technical achievements and what can be will come from young people i mean young people have always driven new technologies whether it was you know steve jobs in in sure. our era sure. it, it's always those people because they don't see what is they see what could be yeah, I agree. Scott, well, thank you very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really do appreciate it. Remember, My pleasure, Bob. Remember, the Bob Pritchard Radio Show is a place for interviews with the leaders and shakers in American business, entertainment, and sports. Scott, I look forward to catching up with you again in the near future. And I'll be back with more Bob Pritchard Radio Show right after this short break. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com. That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard. This is the Straight Talking No Bullshit Business Show. And we're coming to you this week again from my hometown of Los Angeles. Now, one thing I love about uh, speaking to businesses all over the world, and at the last count I've spoken in, I think, 53 countries, is that during question time, no matter where you are in the world, the questions are pretty much the same. And I think the reason that this segment is globally popular is because the advice that we give applies to every business, whether it's large or small, whether it's a startup or whether it's mature. So I love doing this segment. My first email today is from Julian Montgomery from Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. And Julian's email reads, Dear Bob, thanks for your great program. It is a big help to small businesses like me. Your advice is really practical and simple. You really do tell it like it is. Well, I try. I also own a few Robert Graham shirts, um, but women's kind. And I thoroughly enjoyed the interview last week with Robert Stock. His focus on the details of running the business and on customer service really hit a chord with me. Many of the small business people I know, we do our research, we set our vision and create a business plan and then really struggle for what seems like one awful long time. Every month you spend hoping that this is the month that business is going to turn around. Well, Robert Stock was so down to earth but obviously committed and determined. Your interview gave me a new focus. It was great. Incidentally, I tried to get your book at my local bookstore but they didn't have it. I will try Amazon. Keep up the good work. Dear Gillian, thanks for your email. I couldn't find a question in there to answer, so I'll just make a comment instead. Um, if you believe in your... First of all, um, last week, I think a lot of people got the impression that um, Robert Graham only make men's clothing, and that isn't true. They make a great range of men and women's clothing. Now, if you believe in your project and you're confident in the research and the strategy that you've developed, then you really need to persevere. Research shows that the primary reason many salespeople do not get sales is because they just give up too soon. 96% of salespeople give up after receiving less than six rejections. Yet a Dartnell Corporation study shows that most businesses, business accounts are won after the prospect has said no eight times. It's pretty hard, knock, 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 hello, can I sell you this no Knock, 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 can I sell you this? No. Copying that six times is, you know, pretty hard to do, but you have to do it. You know, there's some great examples in the history of perseverance. Colonel Sanders knocked on over a thousand restaurant doors before he obtained the first customer for his secret herbs and spices. Now, there's not one single person in the world that hasn't tried Colonel Sanders, and probably regretted it, but nevertheless. Michael Blake, author of Dances with Wolves, had 26 years of rejection before it got published. You'd give up, wouldn't you? You'd be on about your 900th rewrite. And one that may not be a surprise to many people, Bob Dylan was booed off stage at his first high school talent quest. Now, I love Bob Dylan. I'm a 
great fan. But I can understand when he was about, what is high school? Would have been about 16, 17. Um, possibly not going over so well. So, Julian, your attitude is spot on. I'm sure you'll make it. You've just got to hang on in there, girl. With regard to obtaining a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, you don't have to worry because I will send you one tomorrow. But if you're listening and are having trouble getting a copy of the book, go online to Amazon. They definitely have them. And My next email comes from George Jimenez of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and George's email reads, Dear Bob, thanks for a great program. I listen to it every week. In the last three months, I've only missed a handful of programs, and I enjoy it very much. All of my marketing for my business is online. I have a Facebook page, a Twitter account, emails, newsletters. I'm on LinkedIn. I've got a website optimized for search engine and mobile users. Bob, how do I drive up traffic on all of these applications? Well, George, thanks for your email. God, I bet that the three programs you missed were my best ones. It's always the way. But if you did miss those three, don't forget, if you're listening and you haven't heard um, all of the 160, 170 interviews with the top movers and shakers that I've done, you can go to the archives on voiceamericabusiness.com and you can listen to all of the shows and all of the interviews with celebrity sports and entertainment people. And you can do it at your own convenience. George, it's great to be online-centric, but make sure you don't forget good old-fashioned offline promotion. I know that a lot of people today focus on online and just forget about offline, but marketing firm iProspect found that two-thirds of online searches are driven by information obtained offline. That's a pretty amazing statistic for a word a world that's become, you know, totally web focused. Now as internet um as mobile internet surges, I guess that number will probably come down a little bit. But it's still a very telling data point. You got fifty percent of people probably um driven online by information obtained offline. So you need to make sure to include an email address, your website and social media information on all of your marketing materials, including business cards, brochures, flyers, invoices, your product packaging, stick a sign on the back of your car, you know, make your product names catchy and memorable and and make sure that you include your consumer purchasing benefit everywhere possible. I can't stress how important the consumer purchasing benefit is. And you need to rem- need to ensure that people have your name first brand recall when they search. Advertising, direct mailings, trade shows, conferences, networking events, um, signage on your car, which I mentioned a minute ago, can also generate interest and build your brand equity. And that's what you need to build. So get out there and establish yourself as an expert and promote your brand in the process. You need to be as active offline as you are online. George, that was a great question. Um, We will send you out a copy of Marketing Magic, which I wrote with Brian Tracy, Jay Conrad Levinson, and the great Robert Bly. It also has articles by 14 other leading American marketers, so it, it provides a 
wide cross-section of views. I'm sure that you're going to love it. Now, my last email today, I don't think I'm going to have time to get through, but um, it's from Juan Covas of Madrid, Spain. And uh, Juan says, Dear Bob, thanks for your show. I have a small business with just 10 employees and would like to know what advantage is there in using cloud computing. Well, I'll do. I'll abbreviate this. One, cloud computing allows all of the small businesses critical transactions as well as economic, e-commerce and website traffic data to be accessible at any time, anywhere with the proper application. A program such as New Tech Advantage is extremely beneficial to small business owners such as yourself because it allows you to see your real-time business information from any computer, smartphone or tablet on the planet. Cloud computing allows you to spend less time dealing with, you know, all those bloody boring administrative matters and you can spend more time selling and servicing customers. Having real-time information, of course, means better and more profitable decisions. So you don't, you know, you know you've always got access to the information. And real inf- real-time information also means key business management decisions and data. It's only seconds away, no matter where you happen to be. Cloud computing also costs less and damn sight cheaper than an IT department and everything's available at your fingertips in the cloud. So one, cloud computing is the way of the future, saves you time and money, and it makes your information and your business management data available at any time, no matter where in the world you are. One, a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, which is my latest best-selling book, my fifth, is on its way to you tomorrow. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show and are benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com. New website, only been up a week, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. Send me your questions. Email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and be my friend on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at exactly the same time. This is Bob Pritchard, Voice America Business, and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.